and it is Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Thank you, Meredith. Um, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Adam, if you're new here. And um, my name's Adam, if you're not new here. That's, that's true. Um, uh, every once in a while, Jacob uh, gives me an opportunity to speak. And um, a few weeks back, he asked me if I would speak this week. And I saw the passage that was coming up, and I was so excited. So um, I'm really glad we get to, to be in this passage today. Um, Romans 8 is the most hope-filled chapter in the entire Bible. And um, after this past year, I think it's a a great chapter to be in for us. Um, It's incredibly relevant to our lives. Um, Let let me just share a word um, before we dive into this, um, a word about hope in the Bible. Um, Biblical hope is different than wishful thinking. Okay, so um, a lot of times we'll say things like, I hope the weather is good next month for the event that we're going to have, right? Um, and, And all that really amounts to is wishful thinking. Right? I'm, I'm hoping it'll happen. Who knows if it will? Or I hope I get an A on that test that I didn't study for. Right? That would be wishful thinking. That's not how the Bible works with hope, though. Um, hope, it, biblical hope is a confidence in God's plan for the future. It's, it's a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Um, Romans 5.2, uh, which we looked at a while back, um, Romans 5.2 says, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so we have a confidence in this thing that we're looking ahead to. Um, Romans 8 is this this incredibly hope-filled chapter, and the passage that we're in today is the climax of Paul's argument uh, or his explanation for why we can have confidence in this hope. Um, In verses 28 through 30, we get kind of this glimpse behind the scenes. It's like God pulls back the veil and allows us to see his eternal purposes. And it's just amazing. Um, So before we dive into this, um, would you pray with me? I I think um, as we um, get together, we study God's word, uh, we have an enemy who doesn't want us to understand and appreciate these things. We've got plenty of distractions, and maybe some of you are just tired. So why don't we pray that God would prepare our hearts for this? Our Father, we uh, come before you and recognize the amazing truth that you have presented before us here today. Um, Lord, we're so grateful for your amazing love and the way that you act in every single area of our lives. Father, thank you that you've given us your word that gives us a glimpse into the future, Lord, so that we can have confidence in what lies ahead. And as we approach these things, Lord, I pray that we would uh, grow to love you more. Lord, help us to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of you, our love for you, our confidence in you. Um, Lord, prepare our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this morning, what I'd like for us to do is I would like for us to just think carefully about what this passage says. Uh, We're going to look at three kind of big ideas about um, why we should have confidence in the Lord, but there is so much packed into this, and I want us to just kind of walk through this passage and and take time to smell the roses and take time to appreciate what is said here. Um, So the first thing that we're going to look at is the reason for our confidence, and it's in verse 28. It says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And that's an incredible promise, right? And it's one that probably a lot of us have leaned on at one point or another in our Christian lives. Um, And it's not promising that everything's going to be easy. In fact, the, the verse here is in the context of a discussion on suffering. So verse 18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Paul goes on to talk about the groaning of creation and and our own inward groaning as we deal with a world around us that is not perfect, that has problems, that has suffering, that throws things at us that are difficult, and yet in the midst of that, there is great hope. And so, this passage, this all things work together for good, is not ignoring the difficulties of life. It's saying, no, in the midst of those difficulties, God is at work to bring these things together for good. I think it's really important, though, with this verse, um, that we don't misquote it. Here's how it gets misquoted a lot. Sometimes this shows up on t-shirts or mugs or bumper stickers. All things work together for good. That's not what this says. This says all things work together for good for believers, right? To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what's interesting is how the Bible talks about believers in this, in this passage here. What, what Paul does here is he kind of gives us uh, two different views of what a believer looks like, right? What does a Christian look like? And he gives us the perspective from, from here on earth, from from our perspective, man's perspective, and then he also gives us the perspective from God's side of things. So from man's perspective, what does a believer look like? This is someone who loves the Lord. Okay, so a believer is not just someone who could pass a theology test. Is, is God Trinity? Yes, right? It's more than that. It's more than just intellectual assent to the existence of God. This is This is a a passion that God places in our hearts that once we believe the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that there's an affection stirred in our hearts, that we love the Lord, right? What's the first commandment in Scripture? What's the the first commandment that, that Jesus says is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so what does a believer look like? It's someone that loves the Lord, right? But before we ever have an opportunity to love the Lord, before that is stirred in our hearts, God has already been at work. Okay? Before we ever start to love the Lord, there's a, something that precedes that, and that's this, this second part here, to those who are called according to His purpose. Okay? We're going to look at that a little more in verse 29. Excuse me, verse 29. But... Um, what it's saying here is not those who are called in the sense of like called into full-time ministry or something like that. This is a reference to all believers, 
all Christians are called according to his purpose. Okay, and we're going to take a look at what that means that we are called according to his purpose. Um, it's what oftentimes is referred to as the effectual call of God. It's when God steps into your life and calls you to himself, right? His drawing you to himself. Um, what I want to do here um, for just a second is I want you to think about what the implications of verse 20 are, 28 are for our understanding of who God is and what he's capable of. Verse 28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For God to cause all things to work together for good means that nothing is outside of his control. Is that fair? Nothing is outside of God's control. Otherwise, he couldn't cause all things to work together for good. Now, if you've been around Christian world, Christian um, circles for a while, you've probably heard debates about this. How is it that God can cause all things to work together for good? How, how much control over things does God actually have? Right? This is where the Calvinism versus Arminianism debate um, comes in, where uh, college students stay up way too late arguing with each other. Um, how, how much control does God have in, in our lives? Um, and how does that work exactly? Um, Steve Lawson is a professor and a, a preacher, and uh, he offers three sentences to help us understand the sovereignty of God. And I came across these recently, and, and at first I wasn't sure about it, and so I spent some time thinking about it, and I think, it's, I think this is right. So he's, he gives us these three sentences. God causes some things. God allows other things. God controls all things. Let me say that one more time. God causes some things. God allows other things. God controls all things. Now, here's why that distinction is important. God is not the author of sin. So if I were to choose to sin, it would not be because God made me sin. Right? God didn't cause me to sin. I chose to do that on my own if I did. Right? And yet, in the midst of that sin, I have never overstepped or, or stepped outside of the sovereign control of God. Right? I can never overstep the bounds of his sovereign control in my life. Let me, let me describe, or, or let me share with you how the Bible talks about this. So Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, is, is maybe the classic passage for this. The context there is, is Joseph is speaking, and if you remember the story of Joseph, um, his brothers were not nice. So Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, and they decide to sell him into slavery. So you think you have family problems, right? Man, Joseph's brothers are rough. So they sell him into slavery. He ends up down in Egypt, and God uses him to interpret Pharaoh's dream and ultimately to save the people not only of Egypt from this famine, but he, he's used to save the whole world around them, all the, all the nations and areas around them through Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. So everything seems to go well. It's all great. Uh, Joseph's family eventually comes down to Egypt. Well, when dad dies, when Jacob passes away, 
the older brothers start to worry. Oh man, Joseph's going to let us have it. He's really going to have it out on us now. And so they, they go to Joseph and they try to convince him to be nice to them. And um, Joseph's perspective on this is amazing. And this is in God's inspired word. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring out this present result to preserve many people alive. So there is intentionality from both sides. They meant evil against him. God meant good through this thing that happened. So God was intentional. He was in control of this entire situation, even their sin, right? Even a bad thing God used for good. Now, here's why I think that perspective is really, really important for us. Um, Back in January of 2018, so about three years ago, um, I was sitting here in the church one Monday morning, and um, I got an email from Enterprise Middle School. And the email was to notify parents about a situation that had taken place over the weekend. And in the email, um, there was a statement from the West Richland Police Department. I just want to read it for you. It says, on January 28, 2018, a 13-year-old juvenile male was taken into custody for threats to kill and harassment after reports that he was developing plans for a school shooting at Enterprise Middle School. The arrest occurred after substantial investigation conducted by the West Richland Police Department and the Richland School District. So as a parent, that's terrifying, right? That was scary. I I was shaken that morning. I was glad that they had stopped this, but, but the realization sunk in, like, there could have been a school shooting if things had gone slightly differently. And the, the knowledge that my son Nathan was in school that day, I was, I was a mess, right, in, in recognizing what had almost taken place there. And yet I know this truth. God is in control of all things. He's actively involved in every detail of life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the horrific. God is in control of all things. And if my worst nightmare had come true, I could still go back to this verse and it would still be true. And I wouldn't necessarily understand why, but I would know that God is in control and that He is going to bring good out of it. So whether it's losing a job or losing a marriage or losing a child, God can pick up the pieces of the mess and bring good out of that. Um, the most stunning example of this is, of course, what God did with Jesus. So Acts 2, verses 22 through 23 says this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, it tells us that this was all part of God's plan, right? This was not like God was shocked. Oh my goodness, what are they doing? No, this, this was never a surprise for God. 
This was all part of his plan, and yet it occurred by the hands of godless men, and they were responsible for that. And so God took the worst possible sin and brought good out of it, and it was all part of his plan. It was his intention all along. So why does God allow bad things to happen in our lives? Well, honestly, we don't always know, (laughs) right? The reality is sometimes we don't know in the moment why he is doing what he's doing. And yet we can have confidence that he is good, and we have confidence that he is great in the sense he is in control, he is sovereign over all of it. And so we don't have to doubt that somehow God has, you know, fallen off the throne and he's incapable. And we don't have to doubt his intentions. We can be confident in his plan, that his plan for us is perfect. Um, The very next verse goes on to explain what God's predetermined plan for your life is. So this is helpful, right, if you've ever wondered what is God's plan for your life. So verse 29 talks about God's purpose for your life. So let me read it for you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, we're going to skip over that word foreknew for just a moment. We'll, we'll come back to that. But I want to focus in for a minute on this phrase, he also, predest- he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Now, if someone asks you if you believe in predestination, you can ask them what do they mean by that. But, but at the heart of it, your answer needs to be yes. Right? Do you believe in predestination? Yes. Right? Because it's here in the Bible. <laughs> so either you're going to say, I don't believe the Bible, or you're going to say, yes, I believe in predestination. Let's have a, top, a conversation about what that means. Um, But this word predestined just means that something is determined in advance. It means choosing your destination before you start the journey. So when Paul says that we are predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, it means that before we start our journey, that God determined in advance that we will actually arrive at that goal. He determined that we will not fall or fail, along the way. Here's what that means. It means that you cannot be saved without eventually, actually becoming like Jesus. Salvation equals conformity to Christ. You will become like Christ. That's what he's saying here. Okay, it's been determined in advance, already a settled deal. This will happen. Um, It's very similar to what 2 Timothy 1.9 says. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, right? It's not contingent upon me. Man, I hope I can make it. Not contingent upon me and my works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, right? He has granted this to us, his good purpose from all eternity, the good to which he is working, Right? The, the working together of good for us is not that we will be comfortable or healthy and wealthy. The good that he is working in our lives is that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. We will ultimately be like Christ, which is a far greater good than having a little more money. Right? It's just money. It's going to go away. Um, 
But it's so much better that we are conformed to the image of Christ, that we will arrive at that goal. And why does he want us to be conformed to the image of Christ? So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Just, yeah, think on that one for a little while. That we will be siblings of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we, we will be in some some amazing way able to participate in the fellowship of the Godhead, to share in His amazing glory for all eternity. That's, I'm, yeah, I don't know what to do with that one. That's just amazing. <laughs> it's just incredible. Now, if we didn't have the context of this verse, if all we had was predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, it might be a little overwhelming. It might even be discouraging. Like, how's that going to happen? Like, you look in the mirror and you say, it doesn't seem to be working quite yet. I don't think I'm there. But the reality of the context of this verse is this is all about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and all about what Christ has done for us. Right? So this is not based on me trying harder. This isn't get on the treadmill, performance treadmill, and just keep going, try harder, work up some more love for God, hopefully you'll get there. No, this is the Holy Spirit doing this in you. And that's what chapter 8 is all about, is these amazing promises of how He's putting this new mind in you, and He's granting you peace, and, and through the Spirit, He's putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and He's doing all these great things in us so that we can be confident that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. Because the Spirit is at work in our lives doing these amazing things. And that brings us to this final part, and that is the certainty of God's good plan. Now, we, we get um, what is sometimes theologians have referred to this as the golden chain. Okay, there are five links along this, and none of them will be broken. So let me read verses 28 through 30 one more time for us. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. If it feels a little bit uh, repetitive, that's because it is. Okay, Paul could have said this in much simpler fashion. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined and called and justified and glorified. But he doesn't. He belabors the point. Those whom he called, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, in case we forgot who we're talking about, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, now Paul doesn't normally talk like that. He's usually very efficient in his use of speech, but man, he wants to drive this point home. Here's how I would uh, picture this. You've got five buckets, okay? Five different buckets. Each one is labeled foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. You put a bunch of marbles in the first bucket, okay? And you pour all of the marbles into the second bucket. Those whom he foreknew, all of those, every one of them, he also predestined. I didn't lose any marbles, did I? They're all still there, right? Those whom he predestined, he also called. 
haven't lost any yet. Those whom he called, he also justified, haven't lost any. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Nobody's lost along the way. God doesn't lose his marbles. So, um, just had to. Nobody's lost along the way in this process, right? So, those whom he foreknew and predestined and called to himself, every last one of them is glorified. Every last one of them arrives at the goal. No one is lost along the way. That's amazing. And that tells us a lot about God's sovereign control in the whole matter. He's able to cause and control the outcome. God's not like wondering, like, man, I hope it works out for this guy. I hope it works out for that girl. I don't know. I mean, it's been a rough day. Maybe, you know. No, God is in control of the whole process all along the way. So let's talk about each of these terms just briefly. And actually, I'm going to spend the most time on foreknew. Because I think that's the one that we might get off course a little bit with. What foreknew is not saying is it's not saying that God looked down through the corridors of time into the future and saw how things would go with you. And if you had faith, God said, oh, it works out well with that one. I didn't realize that. Um, Okay, yeah, okay. So I guess I, I foreknew that it would work out well with that person. Okay, that is not what is being said here. Um, That would be more like God foresaw. This is more of a relational word. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at how the the Bible talks about God knowing people. Um, But God foreknew the individuals. He foreknew us. And so let let me just walk through a few passages that kind of develop this idea of what it means to know someone in a biblical sense. So the first passage I want to look at is Genesis 4.1. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. I love that word, man-child. Why did they... That's just a weird word. Um, Now the man had relations with his wife is how my Bible translates that. What the Hebrew actually says is now the man knew his wife Eve. The English translators have tried to help us out a little bit by explaining what he means by knew his wife. right? But what it's talking about is knowing his wife in the most personal, intimate, loving way possible. He knew his wife Eve, and the outcome is a child. Okay, So the Hebrew there, the word is knew. He knew his wife. And that's the same way that word gets used all sorts of different contexts. So look at Psalm chapter 1, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If God knows the way of the righteous, does that mean he's unaware of the way of the wicked? Oh, I didn't know that was happening. No, God is absolutely aware of that. That's the reason they're going to perish, is they will face judgment from the Lord. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous in a personal, intimate way. He is connected to those people. He loves them. There's an element of a loving relationship and a a, a choice that he makes to bless these people. Uh, Look at Jeremiah 1.5. It says, Before I formed you in the womb, 
I knew you, and before, I, before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. There's a parallel there, if you look at that verse. Um, before I formed you in the womb is parallel to before you were born. Before I knew you is parallel to I consecrated you. I knew you and I consecrated you are parallel ideas. Right? So the knowing is more than just God is aware of Jeremiah. Right? Now this is, this is a, a knowledge of him and a relational kind of connection to him. God chose Jeremiah and loved him and decided to make him a prophet. Look at Amos 3.2. It says, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is one of those times where it's kind of rough to be God's chosen people. Um, You only I have chosen among all the families of the earth. You know what that word is in the Hebrew? That word is to know. So literally this would say, you only I have known among all the families of the earth. Now God was certainly aware of the other nations, right? It's not like God didn't know that there were Babylonians. No, God knew his people in a very special way. And I think the English translators do a good job helping us out here. You only I have chosen among all the nations. Those are all Old Testament. Those are in Hebrew. So let's see if if it's the same way in Greek. Um, Matthew 7.21, this is New Testament now. Uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? They're convinced that, that they've done all these great things for God. Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now what this does not mean, I never knew you, is that he never knew who they were. It doesn't mean that he was unaware of what was going on in their lives. He actually knows that they were practicing lawlessness, right? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He's well aware of what's going on in these people's lives. But there is no saving relationship with Christ here. That's what he's saying, right? They they do not know Christ, and he does not know them. And so there's something more than just cognitive knowledge about a set of facts or awareness of... This, this is talking about a personal connection to Christ. Um, John 10.14 says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Jesus knows his sheep in a way that is different from how he knows the rest of humanity. No means... I love them, I have chosen them, I have an intimate personal connection to them. Right? That's what that's talking about. 1 Corinthians 8.3, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. God certainly knows everyone else, but this knowledge is something special. He is known by him. Why did I belabor that point? Here's why. The reason I I belabor that point is I think it's really important that we understand when we come to this verse and it says, those whom he foreknew, it's not talking about those that God looked down through the 
the passage of time and, and discovered they had faith. This is those whom God has chosen, that God has selected to have a relationship with. Right? That's, that's what's being described here. Now, now look at how this goes on from there. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, now, how is it that God can in advance choose who will be saved? How does this relate to our own free will? And this passage doesn't answer that. That's actually answered in great detail in chapter 9, and Jacob's going to be preaching on that, so we're going to let him answer that question. That's the really hard one. It's going to be so much fun. If you want to read in advance, Romans 9 does talk about this idea that God chooses some and not others, and and what does that mean, and, and how is it that some are saved? It does talk about that. So read on in Romans 9 if you'd like to to consider those things. Here's what this does say. God knows us intimately well before we were ever born. He determined in advance that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And he called us, called us to himself. Um, That's more than just an invitation to the gospel, by the way. Because all those who are called are also justified. Right? So it's not just everybody who happens to like, receive a gospel tract that is immediately justified. No, this is something more than that. This is like when Jesus goes out to the disciples and says, follow me, and they do. They hear the voice of the Lord, and, and it works. <laughs> it works in their life, right? And they follow him, right? That's the same idea that's being presented here, that, that those who are called are those who God like, reaches into their life and does something with them. Right? So in eternity past, before, long before we were ever aware of it, God foreknew us, He predestined. But then we get to this point, and it says that God in our time calls us to Himself. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined, He called. And all of these He also justified. Um, justified, if you remember way back in chapter 3 when we were there, um, we spent some time talking about that. Justified means to be declared righteous. God has declared them righteous in their sight. It's a gift. It's freely given. It's based on our faith in Christ. But it is God's act on our behalf. He justifies us and declares us righteous. And then this concludes with this last thing where it says, Um, These whom he justified, he also glorified. It's interesting that's in the past tense, right? Paul speaks of this as if it's already done. You're already glorified. It's a done deal. There's so much certainty there that he can speak of it as if it's already finished and accomplished. Um, To be glorified speaks of our final resurrection and our redemption, our complete sharing in the glory of Christ. And God can speak of this with incredible certainty. Consider Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. This is amazing. And what we need to understand here is that God not only sees the future 
he actually controls the outcome. He controls the future. This, these kinds of promises are all through the Bible. Um, let me give you another example. Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Another really cool promise that makes absolutely no sense unless God is in control, right? If God is not in control of the outcome, then this this wouldn't make any sense. How is it that he who began a good work in you will perfect it? How can we have certainty? How can we be confident of this thing? Only if we believe God is in control of the outcome. He's actually going to accomplish his good purposes in our life. And that good purpose is that we will be conformed to the image of Christ, that we will be like Him um, forever, which is an amazing truth. It's a glorious truth. Why do we have hope? That's the point of this whole passage. Why do we have hope? Because nothing will hinder us from the good purpose that God has for us. Nothing will hinder us from that. Um, as, as we think about this, let me, let me give you three questions to ponder. Um, things to consider for your own self, um, self-reflection as you think about this. Um, the first question is, do you love God? Um, that's, that's earlier in this passage. Um, it's implied, it's what is expected of all believers. Um, is that true for you? Do you love the Lord? Not just do you believe something about Jesus, but do you love him? Do you really love the Lord? Second question is, do you trust God? There can be times, I think, in our lives where we recognize that God's in control and that scares us a little bit. I've heard of people who've, who've said, I won't pray certain prayers because <laughs> I'm afraid that God will do something that I don't like. Never pray for patience, right? Because God will give you patience the hard way because apparently he's really mean like that. Um, now, do you trust God? Do you really trust the Lord? And that his plans and his purposes, his methods are good. Do you trust the Lord? Are you scared that he's going to like somehow do something mean to you because he's in control? Or do you really trust that his purposes and his, his methods are good? So do you love him? Do you trust him? And then the third thing is, do you praise God for his work in your life? Do you take the time to look around and notice like he has answered some really cool prayers or he has done some amazing things to bless you? Um, every single person in this room has reason to praise the Lord. We live in a, in a great country with a lot of great perks and, and a lot of things going right for us. Um, we have reason to praise the Lord. More than that, we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We have the salvation that is found only in Christ. Do you praise God for his work in your life? Because I think that's implied here, is recognizing all the good that he is accomplishing on our behalf. So do you love him? Do you trust him? Do you praise him? I think that's the direction this passage is pushing us, is that we would understand the certainty of the hope that we have, and it would turn back to him in praise for his good purposes. 
Um, if I could have the worship team come up, and um, we'll go ahead and, and pray. Um, our Father, thank you so much for your good and perfect plan for our lives, Lord. Thank you for your good purposes, and Father, I'm so grateful that it's not contingent on me. I'm so grateful, Lord, that you are in control of all things, that you cause all things to work together for good, and that that good is ultimately going to make each one of us to be more like Christ. Um, Father, I pray that that would be true in every area of our lives, Lord, that you would root out any remaining sin and allow us to exhibit the likeness of Christ to those around us, that we would bear testimony of your good work in our lives, Lord. And um, Father, we love you. We know that you can be trusted, and we praise you for your good work in our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.